the skies, fill the skies with the song. This heaven sings along, glorify the sun.
God is so good, isn't he? Lord, we love you, and we just thank you for who you are. God, would you be lifted up as we continue this morning? Your name alone, let it be on our hearts and on our lips. Amen. in Christ and that we can truly stand before a holy God unashamed and fully clean because of Jesus and what he did for us. To you, to him, be all the glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. It's, uh, I'm grateful to be able to gather with you uh, this morning. I'm grateful that the weather held off so we could uh, be together as a church family this morning. Our first impression team volunteers are going to begin passing out the connection card booklets. Um, so if you're new with us, fill out that gray section. If you're 
uh, regular tender member, fill out the top, let us know you're here. If you're the last person in that row, you can just put that underneath your seat at the end. I, I want to draw your attention to a few next steps for you uh, regarding this, this card and next steps that are appropriate to us as a church right now. Community groups are starting back up right now. And so if you're not connected to a community group, mark that uh, box and we'll be in contact to be able to uh, connect you to one. We still have three spots left for our marriage community group that's starting this Wednesday. And so if that uh, is a, an appropriate next step for you, then talk to me afterwards and I'll get you the books and you can um, take home and dig into those and jump in this Wednesday, all right? And then next Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m., we have our next Discover Crosspoint. We've been offering these monthly since September of this last year. And our desire is to see all those who call this church home go back through and attend and participate in Discover Crosspoint. We're offering child care for this one. And so if that's a, uh, been in, uh, uh, something inhibiting you from being able to be involved this last fall, then that's an opportunity for us to serve you in that way. And so one of our prayers for this year is that the Lord would unite us, that we'd grow closer to one another. We'd kind of draw closer to one another, as our vision statement says, to be dedicated to one another. According to the New Testament, the local church is a family, a body, a flock, a temple, a house, a priesthood. All those pictures remind us that we need each other. And that we're called to follow Jesus together. And so if you're newer, you started attending this last year, if you've been around from day one, we want you to come and be a part of this gathering. It's a good first step, a good next step for you. I know that your time is precious. I'm personally fully aware in the season I am in right now, in my household and in my work life and work-life balance, I'm fully aware that the time is precious. And so I wouldn't ask you to attend something that would be a waste I believe the Spirit will use this to encourage you in your faith, to encourage you in your relationships with one another, to give you next steps that the Lord is calling you to in your faith. And so mark membership or Discover Crosspoint on that card, um, and we'll get in contact with you for this next Sunday. Before we get into Ezra, we want to call up our community group leaders, and Pastor Eric is going to uh, pray for uh, our community group leaders as this new semester kicks off. So if those leaders want to come on up. Yeah, so if you are a community group leader or a co-leader uh, in a group, we'd love to have you up here. Um, not everyone is here this Sunday, I know that, but uh, for anybody that's not in a community group yet, um, groups are starting back up. Some have already started back up. Some will start up uh, shortly. You can go to our website, click on the What We Do tab, and then there's a, a link there that says 3D Community Groups. You can find out information there. There's um, uh, emails and contact info for the leaders of those groups, days of the week and how often they meet and things like that. Um, but I love this, okay? This is, um, this is, I love to see people help other people follow Jesus. And, uh, you know, we pray for missionaries and we pray for people that we're sending out and, and we're sending people out. But I want you guys to know something. And we talked about this this past Sunday um, together as we gathered together. But, um, they're not elevated as, as community group leaders. They're followers of Jesus who are um, inviting people into their houses to follow Jesus together. And uh, first and foremost, that's all of us, right? We're all disciples of Jesus Christ, and we all follow Jesus together. And so it's a way of life in Christ. It's not a ministry of a church. Um, and yet, like Dave said, our schedules and things like that um, we need help, and so uh, sometimes it takes getting into a group on a weekly basis or every other week or something like that to just devote some time together. And so I encourage you, if you're not in a group, see me afterwards, uh, or you, you, you now see lots of faces up here, right? Find somebody and say, how do I get involved? And if you're a member here and you, and you God is laying that on your heart, then maybe you want to lead a group, um, talk to me afterwards. But let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus that you have given to us, the clear command for all to go and make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. And uh, Lord, the promise that you go with us, God, the promise that you have given us all we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, and so would you help us, Lord, um, to to pursue Jesus together. Would you, would you bless these groups? Would you encourage the people in them as they grow closer to you? 
uh, in community with one another. And God, would you, uh, would you help this church body uh, to, uh, to not be isolated, but to join together, to pursue you in righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We love you so much, and we pray that you would be glorified uh, this semester in our community groups. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible with you, get to the book of Ezra. If you've never been to the book of Ezra before, use your table of contents. Uh, that is a tool to be used, not, not a tool to be uh, ignored as if you're a less than that you want to use a tool. So uh, get to the book of Ezra. It will be in chapters 4 through uh, six this morning. Um, we're going to be in the Old Testament then counting today. We're going to be in the Old Testament for seven more weeks and we hit the New Testament on March 5th. And on that day, we're going to high five and fist bump each other because for 18 months, we've been in the Old Testament and we will have made it through in shorter time than Israelites did. And so, um, and so I, I, I love that we're in the Old Testament because it's helping us see this overall story from Genesis to Malachi, Genesis to Revelation then of God's story that he is writing and the story that we are involved in. So um, I love Ezra. I think it's going to be uh, very appropriate and applicable to our, uh, our church and to our lives here in 2017. I'm thankful for God's providence in those kind of details. So let me ask us a, qu a question as we get started and as you're getting to Ezra. In your life in 2017, what are you rebuilding? What are you rebuilding? See, we're tracking along with the Israelites who are returning from exile. They're coming back from the homeland. And in today's passage, we're going to see them rebuild the temple that, they, that had been destroyed. A temple was the place of worship. It was where they conducted sacrifices and celebrated the Passover meal. This was not just some insignificant building. To, to rebuild the temple was this act of worship, an act of declaring that the God of the Bible is who their trust was in and who alone is who they worshipped. It was reestablishing what was most important. So again, I ask us the question, what are you rebuilding? What are you reestablishing in 2017? In the beginning of a new year, we take stock, don't we? We evaluate, we assess, we step back and, and do the survey of the year ahead of us. And if I had my guess, we've all got something that we're seeking to rebuild or reestablish this year. Maybe it's your marriage. You've recognized that without some sort of directional change, your marriage is veering off course. Without some sort of heart change in both of you, you're either going to settle into this kind of roommate, business partner type of rut, or worse yet, you're going to land in a place that you never imagined when you walk down that aisle. Three spots remain and re-engage, just so you know. And it's not just for those in crisis. Maybe it's a relationship with your child or uh, this uh, parent-child relationship that you're seeking to rebuild. You've neglected your role as a disciple maker. You've, you've allowed busyness to kind of crowd out time with them. And so you're, so you're going into this new year with a desire to see your relationship with them reestablished, strengthened, built on Christ. Maybe it's a friendship that has been strained in some way. You've sinned against one another. You've hurt one another. And you're desiring to rebuild that friendship in 2017. As your pastor, here's what I sense and I discern in having conversations with many of you over the past several weeks, several months. It's just a sense that I get about our church and its people. I believe for many of us, we are seeking to reestablish, rebuild a living, vibrant, joy-filled, faithful walk with the Lord. I'm not saying that's 100% across the board, but I think that desire and prayer is among us as a church family. David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation in Psalm 51. I believe that that prayer is a reflection of what many of us are seeking or praying right now. To see this restoration, this rebuilding of a walk with the Lord. And that rebuilding process, if you were to sum it up, revolves around three different things. It revolves around word, prayer, and community. You desire to read your Bible on a consistent basis and find joy and life in God's living and active word. You desire to grow in prayerfulness this year, 
to pray as a way of life and continually and talking to your father and listening to your, to your father all the time and about everything. And you've recognized that you've drifted away from community. You've drifted toward isolation, toward ongoing believers with, or ongoing community with other believers where you are both known and you know others, where you serve alongside others for a mission greater than yourself. See, the Israelites were rebuilding the temple. They were declaring through their actions and the physical presence of this building that they were people whose identity were in the God of Israel. They were anchored in God. They were worshipers of God. And I believe, call it Holy, Holy Spirit discernment, a hunch, blame it on what I ate this week, but I sense that many of us are asking the Lord to rebuild our lives to be centered on God and not centered on anything else but on Him. In the past year, maybe it was a loss of a loved one. It was ongoing sin. It was being hurt by someone in the family of God. Complacency or apathy in our spiritual disciplines. But for whatever reason, we are in a place where the Spirit has called us to repent. He's called us to turn around to agree with Him and walk in a new way. And as we ask the Lord to rebuild and restore in us, here's what I know, because I see it in Ezra, is that opposition will occur. That challenges will come. And yet, like we'll see in Ezra, God will be faithful to His people and God will be faithful to finish what He has begun. Last week, Eric preached through Ezra 1 through 3, now we're in 4 through 6, but we're following their return of the people from, from exile back to the promised land. It's 537 B.C., so this is like real history here, all right, just not a made-up story, 537 B.C. After decades in exile, the people of Israel are coming back home. The new Persian emperor, Cyrus, has decreed that they could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. A, a, a city and a temple that had laid in ruins this whole time in exile. And so we pick up the story in Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to, to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and are descendants of King David and Aaron the priest. And they answer this call to rebuild the house of God. But here they're turning down help to build the temple. So on first glance, we go, well, Zerubbabel, besides having an awesome name, we need more Zerubbabels in this life. I don't know if that made top 10 in 2016, but it should. That'd be an awesome, I don't know what kids would do to that on the playground, but it would be awesome. Okay? You go with that, and I'll cheer you on for that. So, um, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua, these two guys... We, on first glance, we go, man, these guys are really proud. I mean, this is like classic manhood right here. Well, I got this. I don't need help, right? But notice how Ezra introduces these people in verse 1. Adversaries, he calls them. These were actually early Samaritans. If you think of the parable of the Good Samaritan story in the New Testament, these adversaries are early Samaritans. The promised land wasn't empty of people during this exile of 70 years. Others had come in to settle in this land, these people being an example of that. But now the nature of the faith of the Samaritans is this combination of law and ritual from the law of Moses and then just some various other superstitions, kind of this melting pot of stuff. Second Corinthians, uh, or sorry, 2 Kings 17.24 tells us that they feared the Lord yet served their own gods. But God's people are commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the Lord our God is one. So we're called to worship supremely, not to worship half-heartedly, 
Not to say, oh, I love the Lord, but I also love the things of this world. I also love sin. I also love the things that pull me away from the Lord. But I love the Lord. The good news of Jesus is not that there are multiple paths up the mountain to God. The good news of Jesus is that when, when we, in our sin, realized there was not a path to be found up the mountain, like we could not climb that thing through our own good efforts, our own good works, Jesus came down. Jesus made a way possible through his life, his death, his resurrection, so that through faith in Christ, we could have a relationship with the Lord. The good news declares that apart from Jesus, when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive. It declares to us that we are wrong and that only through faith in Christ are we made right. And that truth runs counter to the world that doesn't want to worship God supremely. The Samaritans said here in uh, Ezra 4, they said, For we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him. But without a temple and without a priesthood, they were not making sacrifices the way God had called them to make those sacrifices. So to say that they're seeking to worship God in the same way that these returning exiles are was a great contradiction. It was a lie. But this was the Samaritan, this sort of, uh, sure, I fear the Lord, but I'm not really going to follow and trust him. It was lip service alone. It was saying, I'm going to go ahead and live the way I want to live and not pay attention to the word of God. So these adversaries, they want to become partners to these returning Israelites. But in the words of Paul that he wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And this is why Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the people reject this partnership. Because if you're going to rebuild a temple that is set aside to worship the one true God, then you're not going to receive help. You're going to reject help from those who would worship idols. See, Israel had been sent into exile because of their idolatry, and they come back into this land, and they're like, wait, we're not going down that same path. We've been, uh, that didn't go well for us, so we're not going to go down that same path. We're going to reject idolatry. Listen, some of you who are seeking to rebuild and reestablish your walk with the Lord, the Spirit has exposed idolatry in your heart, and you're fully aware of the sin that you're choosing to put off. And so I pray that that same conviction that Zerubbabel and Jeshua had, that you'd be rejecting that temptation to fall back into idolatry. Some of you, for the sake of your, this rebuilding season, you need to separate from friends who you know pull you toward the things of this world. You don't have to be a jerk about it, okay? But if you're seeking to walk in the light, and those friends are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we're walking in the light, but you know in reality that, th that that's just lip service and that they're actually going to pull you toward the things of this world, then you need to separate for the sake of rebuilding and reestablishing with Christ as your cornerstone. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the people reject the help of the adversaries. Notice how they're unified as a people in that rejection. They are in agreement. They are like-minded. They're standing back to back, if you will, because that's that's what God's people are called to do, called to unity. So the people say no, and then these adversaries, they left them alone. They fled the land. They said, go, you know, build the temple. We will get out of the way. We don't want to distract you from the worship of your God. Everything was neatly tied up with a bow. The sitcom ended. The credits ran. The song came by, and the unicorn went prancing by, right? No, not quite, because we're still living in a fallen world. This is why unity and standing back to back is so Vital. Verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Notice how the adversaries continue to try to stir up dissension. Their goal is to disrupt unity and, and this conviction that they've, they've experienced from Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the leaders. And so their hearts, their wicked hearts, ultimately get revealed here. They're not seeking to worship God alone. 
They're seeking to discourage and frustrate so that these people returning to the land would, would flee their mission to rebuild this temple. In Hebrew, the idea here of discourage means to weaken the hands. Weaken the hands. They're seeking to, seeking to weaken the hands of the Israelites. When your hands are weak, you can't rebuild. You can't reestablish. This is why it's so important that as believers in Christ, we encourage one another in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, uh, calls us to encourage one another, to build one another up. Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's difficult to rebuild and reestablish, isn't it? It's difficult. Jesus said that the narrow way is the hard way. But in our pride and in our American bravado, we often live in this posture that we don't need anyone. As if we can follow Jesus in a God-glorifying, life-giving, joy-producing way by ourselves without anyone around us. Without brothers and sisters in the family supporting us, encouraging us, praying for us, and us doing the same. Here we don't see the Israelites doing this, this, this drift toward isolation. We see them in unity alongside one another. The enemy is seeking to discourage and weaken, so God's people must encourage and strengthen. Enemies try to cast doubt and fear. Believers build one another up. Believers lift the chins of discouraged brothers and sisters and call them to fix their eyes on Jesus. Proverbs 27, 17 says that we are to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. So we speak life-giving words. We speak words of love, words of truth, words of life. So don't be the adversary in a believer's life. Don't be the adversary. Don't be the one who casts doubt on God's ability to move and work. Be the brother or sister who says, God is able. God is able. I'll walk alongside you. I don't know what's up ahead, but I'll walk this faith, walk alongside you. The adversaries here in Ezra, they're both aggressive in their discouragement and they're passive aggressive. Neither of those have attitudes, neither of those attitudes have, have a place in the family of God. So we put off pride and we put on humility. We put off line and we put on truth. We are people who speak the truth in love. We are people who, who seek to strengthen the hands of one another as we seek to love the Lord our God with everything we have. If you find yourself alongside someone who is rebuilding and reestablishing, may you lift their chins and point them, help them to fix their eyes on Jesus as you do the same. So in verses 6 through 23 here in Ezra, you get this broad overview of the Samaritan resistance against the work of the temple and the work of the rebuilding of the wall. So it jumps forward in the timeline. It's kind of confusing. But if you take that out and you just go straight to verse 24, it reads this, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem, it stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. So you see that the work of rebuilding the temple... It was disrupted for several years, 16 years. So this discouragement wasn't just this isolated case or a one-time thing. It continued through this whole journey of rebuilding. This is what Ezra wants us to see in chapter 4. So in the midst of the rebuilding, the work was delayed for a season, but it was not defeated. A delay does not mean a defeat. A delay does not mean a defeat. The adversaries were able to delay the work, but they were not able to defeat the work because God was behind that work. Because God is faithful. God is sovereign. God does not ignore those who love and trust in Him. Even in the delay, God is at work. That's what we see here. And we'll see that truth in chapter 5 as well. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were, in who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. 
So the work is back on. It restarts when the Lord sends prophets to declare truth to God's people, to speak the word of God to the people. And the book of Haggai, you, you read of the, how the prophet spoke to the people. He rebuked the Israelites because of the delay of the rebuilding, because in that delay, they turned their focus away from, from the Lord's mission and onto their personal comfort. He says to them in Haggai, he says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? See, the problem was the people's priorities. They were content to let the cause of the Lord, to, they were content to see that suffer because they wanted their own comfort. And because the Lord is relentless to see His mission accomplished, and because He is relentless in His love for people, He sends this prophet Haggai to call out sin in them, to call them back to worshiping Him supremely, to call them away from storing up treasure on earth, to call them back to work. The Lord says to the people in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Haggai, Go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. The Lord sent Zechariah as well as a prophet, and, and his name means the Lord remembers. And that is a fitting name for a prophet who is seeking to lead a rebuilding effort. This prophet was called to encourage and equip God's people to accomplish a task that that they had begun, but they lost momentum in completing. God's people, ever since the Old Testament days to present day, we are notoriously pulled toward this self-induced apathy and comfort. And Zechariah, he lifts their chins, he fixes their eyes on a God who remembers, a God who is faithful, a God who is calling them to worship Him supremely. But again, we see there's outside adversaries here. Verse 3, at the same time, Tatsunai, the governor of the province of, or I'm sorry, of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So Tatnai is the governor of this region. He's appointed by the king of Persia to govern this area, and he's wanting to know why the work of the, of the, of the temple, why that rebuilding effort of the temple and the wall, why it's restarted. So this rebuilding is being tested and threatened again, but there's no evil intent by the governor here. This is like local government. This is like the, the guy just doing his job. You got the right permits and you got the right permissions to do this and that kind of thing. The point that Ezra wants us to see is not that. The point that Ezra wants us to see is that God's eye is on his people. Even in the midst of that, that work will continue. Ezra wants us to see that God's hand is at work here, that his plans and purposes will prevail Work continues. King Darius reaffirms his blessing for the Jews to rebuild the temple. And we fast forward to chapter 6, and the temple rebuilding is complete. Keep in mind, this is the same temple that will be around till the days of Jesus, till the New Testament. So since the work renewed in chapter 5, it's been four years. So this rebuilding effort took 20 years. 16 plus 4 took 20 years, a generation, if you will. It's been about 70 years since that first temple was destroyed. And all those years and time frames tell us a couple things. It takes perseverance and endurance to rebuild and establish and reestablish what was once in ruins. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a generation here, 20 years, to rebuild the second temple. So if in this year you're seeking to rebuild and reestablish your marriage, your parent-child relationship, your friendships, your uh, connection to a, a local church, your walk with the Lord, it won't happen overnight. But God is faithful. A delay does not mean a defeat. God is faithful. God's eye is on those who trust in Him. You won't necessarily just see the evidence of His work in the chapter 6. 
but you also see it in the chapter 4 and the chapter 5, in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. So often we, we only see in hindsight. Because when we're knee-deep in rebuilding and reestablishing, it's difficult to see the evidence of God's grace and God's work. So this is why you need community. This is why you need other people around you who will call that out, who will say, I know it's difficult for you to see, but I see it from this vantage point. I see the grace of God at work in your life. I see it in the chapter 4, in the chapter 5, and the chapter 6, in the completion. So when the rebuilding has taken place, the people rightfully respond in worship and celebration. We pick that up in verse 13 of chapter 6. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, it's so much harder than Illinois or something, and their associates, Woodford County, that's so much easier, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the, de- by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the, of the returned exiles celebrated the, the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. This is a significantly smaller celebration than at the first one. 142,000 animals were sacrificed at the first one. Crazy. Gross. Right? Just seriously. 712 this time around because the Israelites have dwindled. This is a remnant at this point. That doesn't mean their worship here is any less glorifying or God-exalting to God Himself, though. And notice how the celebration was anchored in the Word. It was written, it was done according to the law of Moses, we find out in verse 18. So the people have trusted in the Lord and His Word through this whole rebuilding effort whether it was the word coming through a prophet of Haggai or Zechariah or, or them doing their worship according to the word of God. This new temple allows them to worship according to the law of Moses. Verse 19 then, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was written, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And had turned the heart of the king of, uh, king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is a key moment here for this nation. The Passover is reestablished. In Passover, they remember God's deliverance out of the slavery of Egypt, his act of redemption. God was their trust, not themselves. Because when you finish the journey of rebuilding and reestablishing what was once in ruins, You need to remember and reflect on God's work. That it was God who restored. It was God who provided. It was God who was present. It was God who did not abandon. Worship, celebration, remembrance, all of those are found throughout Scripture, not just here. We see it in Exodus 15 when the the Israelites escape the Egyptians in the Song of Moses and they worship in that moment. We see it when we celebrate communion. And the Lord's Supper, when we remember His death, when we remember His sacrifice, and we remember so that it would lead us to worship and love of our God. What you don't see here is the people beating their own chests in self-glory. In Passover, we remember the Lord. I love this little phrase in verse 22. Did you catch it? It says, For the Lord had made them joyful. 
for the Lord had made them joyful. After 20 years and some opposition along the way and some setbacks and their own personal sin and their own personal apathy and through all those years, God was faithful. God had restored to them His joy. He had made them joyful. Because on the other end of the rebuilding and reestablishing is joy, right? And some of you need to be reminded of this today because you're knee-deep in rebuilding. And it may not always feel joyful. You may not count it all joy, as James would say. But it's never hopeless. It's never hopeless. And in the end, God is bringing about a deeper joy that is more anchored in Him than it was in the ruins. A joy that is anchored in His steadfast faithfulness and love. Years ago, my brother-in-law and I used to flip houses and, as side work because we were just looking for something to do instead of our, uh, you know, just sitting at home. So, um, so we'd buy them and we'd fix them up and then we'd sell them. And I'll never forget the first one we did. We were around 24 years old, I think, 24, 25, just ready to tackle anything that came our way. I don't know how to do that, but we'll figure it out. Before, there was like 2,500 shows on TV about flipping houses. And the first one we ended up getting was, had been vacant for a while. And on the corner of this house, the foundation was literally crumbling. And we saw that, and we're like, yes, yes. Because in that, we, in, in the midst of the crumbling, the water damage, the mold, that all that came with it, we saw what could be. We saw it, actually, we signed before our wives had even seen it. Talk about what, I know. And our wives love us, and they supported us, and that was awesome. That was a, we still joke about that, like, it worked out pretty well, all right? But we had hope that over time, we could return this place that was once in ruins to a place where someone could call, call it home. Throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God working in the midst of judgment, disaster, seemingly hopeless situations. Over and over and over, it's all through Genesis to Malachi. Moments when the foundation is crumbling. And in those times, what we see is God is ultimately not building a building. He's building a people. He's building a people whose foundation is not going to be on the, on the sand, but it's going to be on the rock. A people who were once in the mud and mire, but have been lifted up and placed on a rock. A people whose foundation that was once crumbling but is now rooted and anchored as Christ is their cornerstone. A people who were once enslaved by sin, but now are free to love God and love and serve others. A people who were once without hope, but now have a living hope because of the resurrection of Christ. If the worship team could come back up now. We've been talking about this prayer that we have as a church in 2017, this wake us, humble us, change us, anchor us, unite us and send us. Encourage you to get a wristband afterwards at the front door there as an opportunity for you to be reminded of prayerfulness. It reminds me in the morning when I put that on of, Lord, humble my heart. Lord, wake me from my sin. Help remind me that I'm being sent today and those kind of things. But all those words capture storylines, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. We see it here in Ezra. Prophets, in a sense, coming coming to the people saying, wake, wake up. Wake up from your apathy. We see the people of God being united. We see the people of God being anchored to the Word. A people of God, a remnant that will then, that this remnant will become the line, the same line that Jesus will come from, who will be sent. I see the evidence of God at work in the past of our church. Presently, I see it. And we're praying that it would continue in God-glorifying, God-exalting ways in the year ahead. As we move back into worship, I want to read Psalm 91. The next song we sing is going to be based off this, this psalm. And it's a good reminder that as God's people, just like the returning exiles here in Ezra, we are people who find our refuge in the Lord. In the midst of the ruins, He is our trust. In the midst of adversity, He is our fortress. When circumstances are great or not so great. We will not fear, but we will worship and we will trust and we will walk and live by faith. So if you wouldn't mind, um, just close your eyes and
I want to read Psalm 91. When I get done, we'll stand up and we will declare in song this, these truths, not only to the Lord, but to our own hearts. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked if you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in your hands, in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon my name, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. Let's worship.
give our offering, I pray that we declare that we trust in You. In this act of worship, God, this is our tangible way to say we trust in You. We worship You. We fear You. We live in reverence of You. And we know that Your eye is on the people who trust in You. Thank You for being sovereign. Thank You for being almighty. Thank You for being majestic. Thank you for being so good to your people to give us your son so that there would be a way up the mountain, so there would be a way to cross the, the chasm of our sin into relationship with you. We're grateful for that gift of salvation. I pray that as we give, that you would be at work in our hearts, Lord, and what is given would be, would be used for your kingdom's work, both in this area and to the nation's. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. My life would not lost. My rest would not weary. My peace in the raging storm. You will never falter.
pray that you would continue to wake us and that you would humble us, Lord. You would change us, make us more like you. Father, I pray that you would anchor us to your word, that we would be a people who would live by your living and active word. God, I pray that we would be united in relationship and in, in the family of God. I pray that you draw our hearts closer to one another this year, and I pray that you would send us, Lord. Remind us that as we go to our schools and to our workplaces and everywhere in between, Lord, that you have sent us as your people to represent you and reflect you and to show and tell of the good news of Jesus Christ. Give us opportunities this week and help us not to miss those. We love you. We exalt you in our lives. We're grateful for your presence, for your spirit, for your word. I'm grateful for the church that I get to be a part of. Thank you for this family. Thank you for community. We love you. We exalt you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Meet somebody new before you leave. If you want to sign up for Discover Cross Points back there, God bless.